Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Andrew McCabe became what no career FBI agent craves in 2017 as the deputy and then the acting director of the FBI in the midst of the explosive Russia probe, which made him a frequent target of then-President Trump. I talked to him yesterday about that history, how he experienced it, and the very current threat of domestic terrorism. Here's that conversation. Andrew McCabe, it's really good to see you again. I have so much I want to ask you about relative to your life and your journey. and But I can't, given the moment we're in, I think I want to start uh, with the threat that we face right now uh, and that was so manifest in the uh, insurgency we saw, the, the insurrection uh, at the Capitol. You spent 10 years on counterterrorism uh, at the FBI. Now, you were focused primarily on is- Islamic terrorism, threats from outside? Yeah, so I came up through the counterterrorism division on the um, international, the IT side, which was mostly at that point Islamic extremism. But ultimately, I ran the division and so had DT and IT, all that stuff. And and when you were there, um, how, how much of a threat was uh, domestic terrorism and extremism. How how much of a focus was that for the FBI, and and how has it evolved over the years? So domestic terrorism, or what we refer to as DT, is has always been a serious threat. There have been you know re- remarkable, remarkably destructive uh, at- domestic terrorist attacks, like uh, the the attack on the Alfred P. Mura Federal Building in Oklahoma City is the one that I guess mm-hmm. uh, comes to mind uh, most recently. But the, the DT spectrum has always been characterized by a very broad um, range of groups that are focused on very specific and different ideological um, agendas. And so you've always had white supremacists and the KKK and uh, what different white power groups and you have environmental extremists and you have, um, you know, uh, the anti-fascist extremists. So it's it's always been a very diverse kind of collection of almost niche groups. Um, and that has changed a lot in our uh, in, in recent days in the way that we see uh, the domestic terrorist threat today. You were. Um in the leadership of the FBI for your last several years there. Did you see that evolution uh, during that period of time? You know, it was a kind of a slow burning rise, right? I think we were uh, we were concerned about a peak in domestic terrorist activity um, around the around President Obama's inauguration. And then during his years in the White House, um, you know, having a black president, something that we thought would really set off some white supremacist groups and KKK and kind of other right leaning groups. Um, and I think we did get a mild uptick in activity during that time, but nothing like what we're seeing right now. Yeah. What um, what is what's going on in the FBI right now, do you think? How are they approaching uh, this? Because you have, you know, these far flung groups that were loosely affiliated at, uh, you know, on the 6th of January. But uh, clearly, all of them are sort of indicating that they're, they're still out there. And uh, what, 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 what does the FBI do in a situation like this? How consumed will the FBI be uh, on this particular, particularly the, the 6th and preventing this sort of thing happening again? 
I think there's every reason to believe that domestic terrorism is taking over a bigger and bigger and bigger section of the FBI's counterterrorist resources and attention. I think Director Ray's comments to Congress last summer, where he really called it out as the most significant terrorist threat we have in the homeland, were, was incredibly significant. Nevertheless, I think we still got caught sleeping on on the 6th. I wanted to ask you about that. I had uh, Congressman Kinzinger on here uh, last week, um, and he said that he had told his staff not to come to work on the 6th. His wife was going to come down to see him. He told her not to come down to the Capitol on the 6th. He brought his his gun to, not to the floor, but to his office. And he said, "I, you know, I." it was clear to me that there was going to be violence. I told my caucus this. Uh, they were dismissive and so on. How is it that he, just by monitoring social media, uh, understood the, the, the magnitude of the threat, and yet the U.S. government seemed to be caught flat-footed on that? Yeah, I think there's no question they were caught flat-footed. I th- and I think that that's you know, I think that's on the FBI, that's on the Capitol Police, that's on DHS, everybody who should have played a role in preparing the Capitol for um, for that, uh, you know, that, that rally and the potential violence that might come from it. Um, it's really hard to say at this point, like, why did people assume, why, wor- why weren't people's concern and, um, you know, why wasn't the preparation more intensive? Why didn't they deploy the resources they would have needed to protect the Capitol? Um, you know, it's clear now that there were some intelligence indicators that folks were planning on coming and that, you know, a lot of violent chatter on social media was not a secret. It just seems like, and again, we need to like really peel this thing back with a no kidding investigation, but it seems like they just didn't take it seriously enough. Um, do you think how much of it do you think was fear of uh, displeasing the president? Well, look, there's no question the president does not want to hear about domestic terrorism, and we've known that for years. Um, at the same time, he's he's embraced now the it. former president. We should have now former anybody, president. Lest anybody, that's right. lest, lest anybody be confused. <laughs> it's a, old bad habits are hard to break, I guess. Um, yeah. You know, he not only didn't want intelligence about DT, didn't want to be briefed on it. On the other hand, he's embracing it and acknowledging these groups in not unsubtle ways, you know, um, in ways that are significant to, if you're a member of this fringe kind of, um, you know, this fringe group of people, and all of a sudden you're being acknowledged and referenced by the president of the United States, um, that's an incredibly inspiring, you know, empowering thing for them. So it's really just a perfect storm of not just not taking the threat seriously, but also having the highest levels of leadership um, conveying an imprimatur of approval or appreciation or validation on those groups. Yeah, well, we remember uh, in the debate uh, when he said to the Proud Boys, stand down and stand by. And no yeah. one knew what stand by meant, but they interpreted it as uh, some sort of uh, command. Sure. Uh, so what, but, but my, my question was, if, you know, put yourself in Chris Ray's uh, position as you were uh, for, <laughs> for some time, uh, put yourself in the, the position of some of the folks uh, in the military. Um, would they tread more carefully um, if there was, you know, this, this, after all, these people were rallying for and with the president. Yeah, I think there's, look, if you think of that group as a bunch of Trump supporters, rather than thinking them thinking of them as an amalgamation of different right-leaning, potentially domestic terrorist organizations, you're going to react very differently. Um, if your biggest concern going into that rally on the 6th was whether or not there'd be counter-protesters or Antifa there, um, you're, you're, and realizing that there weren't really, you're not seeing any plans of that. You're going to go into the six with your guard down. And I think it's entirely possible that that's what happened. Um, I don't think they took, you know, the, the prospect of 10,000 Trump supporters turning into a violent mob. I just don't think they took it seriously enough. 
Talk to me about radicalization. You obviously are a student of that. You'd have to be to do the, to play the role that you played in counterterrorism. Uh, I read this a story uh, Ronan Farrow wrote this week in the New Yorker. I don't know if you saw it, but it was a it was he he interviewed and I, she may still be at large. the The story seemed to indicate that she was a you know still a fugitive, but a, a mother from Western Pennsylvania with eight kids yeah. and um, pink you know, hat lady. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so take a case like that. I mean, she said, you know, I'm, I get information from all these sources. You know, Rudy Giuliani was a big source of information for her. How do how do people like her, uh, you know, end up on the other end of a battering ram trying to knock down the win- a window of the U.S. Capitol and, 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 and invade the Capitol? You know, Dave, they end up there in the same way that a unemployed recent high school graduate Somali immigrant in Minneapolis ends up getting on a plane and flying to Africa and then strapping a bomb on his chest and blowing it up outside of a police station. It's the same process of radicalization. You take people who have, who are disconnected or isolated, maybe economically, maybe socially, maybe religiously, whatever it might be. And then you appeal to them with an unrelenting stream of propaganda, which we saw, for instance, nobody did that better than the Islamic State. Uh, but now we've seen it in our own domestic politics. Um, and then you, you they begin to follow the, the, the advice and the direction of a charismatic leader. So you have all of those elements. Um, leading up to the sort of extremist behavior that we saw um, from those Trump supporters on at the Capitol on January 6th. It's a, it's a very similar process. What's interesting is um, uh, I saw some uh, preliminary results of a study that um, Bob Pape, a professor at the University of Chicago, is an expert on terrorism, uh, did. And I've seen other indications of this, that, um, you know, there's this uh, supposition that this group are, you know, non-college and all of that. M- the majority of them were actually college educated, uh, some professionals. You saw a lot of, uh, you know, disproportionate number of military veterans and people co- with connections to the military, mm-hmm. some law enforcement. I mean, how do you draw a profile of the sort of person who is who is most likely to be radicalized and and, and activated to take action uh, as this group was. Dave, in, the, in 2014, when we started really tracking Americans who were traveling to Syria for the purpose of affiliating with the Islamic State and, you know, joining the fight, um, started with a few people. And then that chart got bigger and bigger and bigger as we went along. And what we found was exactly what you've just described. We expected it to be, you know, underprivileged young men um, who had no prospects and were drawn into this, you know, death cult. It wasn't that. It was people. It was men. It was women. It was um, American citizens. It was immigrants to this country. People who were uh, born into uh, born Muslim. People who converted to Islam. It was doctors, lawyers, um, academics. It it's America. It is the cross-section that you see if you gather up any group of people. And I think that's the same thing we saw with the crowd on the sex. You've got law enforcement and military, but it's not exclusively law enforcement mm-hmm. and military. You've got politicians and business people and doctors and out-of-work steel workers and, you know, you name it. It's a very, very diverse crowd. Well, let me ask you a question, a specific question about where we are at this moment. Next week, the impeachment trial, the second impeachment trial of of uh, former President Trump begins. If you're sitting in the FBI, over there at the FBI, is that a a level of, uh, is that a moment of high tension for you? Is that a place where you're concerned that there are going to be more violent acts as as a protest? There's no question that the impeachment proceeding could serve as kind of a triggering event for any one of these groups or individuals. You know, this is not just a, a threat that was focused on the nation's capital. It's a threat that literally comes from every corner of this country. And we've seen in the last few months people taking that 
you know, those grievances and that anger and targeting it at, you know, state houses in Michigan and other states. So uh, if I am, if, if I were running the FBI right now, we would be on a very, very high alert. Um, I would have uh, dedicated command posts open in every office. Um, people would be reaching out to all of their sources of information, human sources of information, informants. They'd be looking very closely at um, you know the chatter that we're able to see online, uh, and just looking for people who you think are planning to act. Very hard to do though, right? Because there's a ton of really inflammatory, violent, you know, comments out there on social media. And the, the challenge is trying to figure out who's actually planning something and, you know, who's just pounding their chest and talking about it. How would you rank this issue? I know, uh, you know, you mentioned that Director Ray said this was the number one domestic, you know, con- concern uh, uh, in terms of, of of terrorism, he said it last summer. But how how big a problem is this? You know, the FBI's number one priority is preventing an act of terrorism in the United States, um, and this is the most likely act of terrorism that we're going to have in the United States in the foreseeable future. So it's a huge problem. Is it, what about the proliferation of guns, and uh, how does that play into this? It makes everything more dangerous for law enforcement in this country. Um, you know, we saw that incredible tragedy yesterday in Fort Lauderdale, um, where a group of agents working crimes against children cases approached an apartment to execute a search warrant. Very standard business that happens around the country, you know, in countless places every day. And the individual inside, who I'm sure knew, you know, what knew the gig was up on his private life of abusing children and took out his, his uh, high-powered rifle and, and shot, uh, you know, all the agents standing in front of his door. Um, that is the threat that we face every time we leave the office and go out to knock on someone's door. These, this particular threat, the domestic terrorist threat, I mean, you've seen the same pictures I have, and not just from the Capitol, but like all summer at the protests. Um, yes. A lot of these guys are very heavily armed. Many of them bring law enforcement and military training uh, to this uh, activity, which makes it even you know more lethal. So uh, yeah, it is not. Um, it's no joke. You didn't come from a uh, uh, a law enforcement family. Uh, uh, your uh, your dad worked for Mazda Motor. Uh, your mom was not uh, in law enforcement. Um, what what drew you to it uh, as a kid uh, uh, growing up in New York and then in Florida? You know, I I've, I wasn't one of those kids who sat around watching you know FBI files on TV and and dreaming about being an agent. And so many people in the FBI, you know, came came to it that way. Um, I really became kind of hooked on the idea when I was in law school. Um, so the the summer between my second and third year in law school, I came to D.C. I was going to law school in Washington University in St. Louis. And I came to D.C. To, to, to be a volunteer intern at the Department of Justice. And I started working. I always thought I might want to be a prosecutor. And so I was working on these big cases, and I had the opportunity to read, to see the work of FBI agents. So FBI agents go out and do an interview, and they record that interview on a document called an FD-302, Federal Document 302. And so I spent the whole summer reading 302s and like getting this kind of insider's glimpse into what agents do, how they are able to sit down and have a conversation, a revealing conversation with really anyone on earth. Um, and I just became obsessed with that idea and the kind of access and the and the intelligence and the information it would it would um, you know make available to you. It's, it would it's literally like a ticket to see every different piece of society, every different way that people live. Um, and so I, that's it. Just totally hooked me. Why did you? Uh, why why were you attracted to the law in the first place? Um, I know you were a uh, you were a championship cross country runner. Uh, and but you can't make a career of that. Uh, <laughs> no, no, that's you're much better than I was. <laughs> so, I mean, what was it that um, that attracted you to, to the law in the first place? 
terrible at math. So science wasn't really an option. Um, I've always been a reader, you know, and um, a writer. And so I kind of gravitated to um, those classes in high school. I've always been interested in government and politics. And it was a political science major at Duke. And so law school just seemed like, um, you know, the right, the right next step for me as I was getting out of, uh, out of college. As I look back on it now, I kind of wish I had done something in between the two, something very different. But um, yeah, in those days, I thought, just head right to law school and keep moving forward. But you didn't head right to the FBI. You couldn't get a job in the FBI. No, I couldn't. I couldn't. They were under a hiring freeze when I graduated from law school. So um, I looked and looked for a job, had a terrible time trying to find one. It was a really bad, um, t- you know, bad economy for the legal market at that time, 1993. And, um, I took a job with a really small firm in Camden, New Jersey, and I just did, you know, whatever walked in the door and I had met, met some great people, worked for great people and, and had a pretty neat experience, you know, in private practice as a lawyer for a couple of years. And then a few years later, you did get the opportunity. You didn't give up on the FBI. You got the opportunity, uh, and you went to uh, and you went to New York, which is kind of a fabled place for both the Justice Department and uh, the FBI. Tell me about that early experience. New York was. Um, you either wanted to go to New York as you're as you're in your training class at Quantico as a new FBI new agent. There was always a few people in the class who wanted to go to New York, and then there was the entirety of the rest of the class who wanted to go any place except New York. Um, and I, I was one of the few who wanted to go back. Um, and you know, it's just like all things about New York; it's overwhelming. Um, it's big. It's loud. It's fast. It's disorganized, um, chaotic. But at the same time, it's the greatest work. Uh, in the FBI. There's just so much you can do. It's the biggest field office in the FBI. There are about 1,200 agents and about another 1,200 support staff working there. So it's about 10% of the FBI works in New York. Um, and you can just do anything. It's, there's so much going on and it's so busy and fast paced that as a new agent, you know, you, you don't have a lot of direct supervision. You can kind of uh, chase your interests, uh, whatever direction they're going to go. And, and you know, having a really big case as a young agent is, is you know, it happens all the time in New York, whereas, you know, smaller offices, that's harder to work out. Yeah. And you, you grew, you spent like your first 10 years or something in New York as well, right? So you were familiar with the city. Yeah. Yeah. His first half of my career was in New York um, doing Russian organized crime. You know, I got to ask you something about uh, the the New York Bureau of the FBI. It also has a reputation for sort of, you, you say that it's big. Not everybody's all that well supervised. It, it, it also has a reputation for strategic leaking, often encountered to the the drift of uh, of, of of Washington. You you had to you faced some of that when you were in the leadership position in, in Washington. I mean, New York sort of has, I mean, the Southern District of New York as a, um, in, the, in the Justice Department has a, a, a reputation for independence as well. But there's something about the whole gestalt of New York that causes a lot of, there was a sense that Rudy Giuliani had lots of links from when he was U.S. attorney there and so on. I mean, was that a, a problem? Yeah, it definitely was. It definitely was. I mean, it, it, it is. I think it all comes from that same place, right? There's this culture in the FBI's New York field office that they play by New York rules, right? It's different than every other field office. You know, they take kind of direction from headquarters when they have to, but most of the time, you know, they kind of chart their own, their own course. That can work for you and against you, you know. The New York field office is able to accomplish things that no other office can do because of their experience, because of their size, their capability, their, their aggression in pursuing cases and with the districts, the U.S. attorney's offices. But on the other hand, they can be really hard to control. And I think you see that in things like, um, you know, information making its way to the media uh, against, um, of course, against FBI policy. Uh, that's when people start to get angry. You know, everyone knows everyone in New York. It's kind of a media center as well. And so there are many agents in New York who have 
kind of bumped elbows with reporters and writers at different times in their career, having worked big cases and things like that. So there's infinitely more opportunities for uh, employees of the office and agents in the office to interact with members of the media. Um, so all that is a very bad combination when you're trying to be responsible about information. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. Just thinking back to 2016, when Director Comey, you were his deputy, was making decisions mm-hmm. about what to disclose and what not uh, to disclose. Was there a concern because of Giuliani's closeness to Trump that things that weren't disclosed would end up being disclosed uh, circuitously uh, via leaks from the New York office or from Giuliani's sources in New York? So I don't know that our concern, I I, I don't want to speak for Jim, but I I don't know that our concern was really very Giuliani focused, but um, with the initial decision on July 5th in the Hillary Clinton investigation for Jim to go forward and make, uh, make the announcement that he did at headquarters that provoked, um, such an incredible backlash from within the organization. Um, there was a lot of, of quite frankly, just wildly inaccurate, like, you know, conspiratorial things kind of leaking out of the FBI into the media. And a lot of that was going on in New York. Um, we knew that there would be many people in the organization that were frustrated by our decision in the case. I think we underestimated um, how they would, you know, kind of lash out by by talking to the media and stuff like that. Um, this we should so point. Having, this was the decision not to pursue charges in the uh, in the email uh, yeah, situation. Correct. So having had that experience in the summer, uh, it's my belief that going into the decision, Jim's decision in November to inform Congress that he was, we were essentially reopening the case to evaluate the emails that had been uncovered on Anthony Weiner's laptop. Did our prior experience of seeing how uh, the fury and was the kind of the backlash leaking out to the media, all that kind of stuff, um, did that have an impact on Jim's decision? Yeah, I expect it did. I didn't talk to Jim about that decision at the time for some other reasons. Yeah, we'll um, get to that. but I think that yeah, yeah, I think that whole seeing how it, the institution reacted in July, and particularly the New York field office in July, I think had an impact on the decision making. Thinking back on those decisions, are there any things that you would have done differently, or that he, you feel like collectively you should have done differently? Yeah, yeah. So I guess my general comment earlier is not entirely accurate. The decision that Jim made in November uh, to announce the reopening of the case, notify Congress, uh, I didn't agree with that then. Um, I thought it was a mistake then. I would have advised Jim not to do that, uh, but he asked me not to weigh in on the issue because at the time, my the question of whether or not I would have to recuse from the case had become something that we were also trying to figure out, and so because of the pendency of that, he said, "I don't want to. I don't want to involve you in this." So I didn't actually play a role in that decision. Had I, I would have strenuously told him not to do it. I thought it was a mistake to tell anyone what we were doing before we knew what we were doing. Um, so anyway, that's that aside. The decision in July to announce the conclusion of the investigation, um, I supported it at the time. I think very differently about it now. I think we departed from our traditional role as the FBI in a way that put the FBI in great jeopardy. Um, I think we clearly had a massive negative impact on uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign in a way that we shouldn't have. Um, I've tried to be really... I don't know, kind of brutally honest about that and the way that I've thought about it and talked about it and written about it since then. I know that, um, you know, I don't know that Jim has changed his mind about the way he sees those things. And that's his, you know, that's his prerogative is certainly his perspective. Um, but yeah, I, I see those things differently now than I did then. And you guys are, are, are fair to say distant now 
Yeah, I mean, we don't, I have uh, infrequent contact with him he, here and there, you know, notes here and there, Christmas cards, that sort of stuff. But we're not like, we're not, we were close at work. We worked, you know, very closely together for a long time, but we weren't like, you know, best buds, you know, golfing buddies outside of work or anything. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you spent a number of years in New York uh, looking into the Russian mafia and the Russian entanglements uh, here. How much did that inform your thinking when you learned in 2016 about what the Russians were doing uh, in the U.S.? Uh, you know, I mean, you're kind of an big, expert on, on yeah. the behavior of the Russians. Yeah, that, I worked, I spent those 10 years working on Russian criminal matters. Um, and doing that work, I had, I developed a pretty keen sense of what the Russians were doing on the foreign counterintelligence side of the FBI as well, right? So there's a, a massive effort within the FBI, tons and tons of agents that investigate Russian uh, intelligence activity in the United States. And so coming from that background, um, you know, I understood and appreciated the significance of the threat uh, that was posed by the possibility of you know Russian government meddling and interfering and assisting a campaign for the presidency. Uh, that was something that we all took very seriously, and and certainly I took it very seriously. I don't know how much you can say about this, but how much did you stumble across, if at all, uh, Donald Trump during those ten years? Uh, you know, there were people who were obviously with ties to Russia, Felix Sater. Mm-hmm. and others who were in his orbit. Uh, were those folks known to you? And uh, were some of their dealings things that you were familiar with? Yeah, so I can, I can, I can only really speak about people who, uh, who's, who our investigations about them have become public. So Felix Sater is one of those people. Felix Sater was investigated by my squad uh, in New York for quite a long time. And so I was I'm definitely familiar with him. Uh, there are others. There are, there are many people in the kind of Trump orbit, um, many Russians who have kind of, you know, become persons of interest or subjects of investigation. Elamzin Taktahunov, who is the Russian uh, organized crime figure who is accused of uh, essentially corrupting the Olympics in, uh, t- in uh, 2002, was a was a tenant in Trump Tower. <laughs> so there's like, you know, there's a there's a lot of uh, cross-pollination there between people that we were investigating in the Russian community and uh, folks who were, you know, in the Trump orbit. When the stories, well, when the investigation surfaced, well, why don't you just give me a little bit of the history of mm-hmm. how you became uh, familiar with the investigation uh, into what the Russians were doing in the campaign and... Uh, uh, and uh, concerns about maybe the linkage between uh, the the Trump campaign and those uh, uh, and the Russian activities. Sure. So, you know, really started with our awareness of and concern about Russian malign cyber activity, um, and really that goes back to almost like the end of 2014. Um, when we became aware of the fact that the Russians were targeting in cyberspace a number of our political, uh, academic uh, institutions, political institutions, think tanks, other places. So they were breaking into these uh, closed systems and stealing information, stealing emails, using that to gain access to other systems, just the the typical stuff. In 2015, we see that activity being directed at uh, political institutions like the DNC and the RNC. Um, and then that, that activity continues into 2016. And then as this is happening, unbeknownst to us, in May of 2016, um, an individual associated with the Trump campaign, right, George Papadopoulos, has a conversation with a friendly foreign diplomat in London in which he tells the diplomat that the Russians have offered to help the campaign by providing dirt on Hillary Clinton in the form of thousands of emails. Then, of course, in the lead up to the convention, the Democratic convention in 2016, we see them actually release the information and weaponize it against Hillary Clinton. 
So now we know what they wanted to do. We know what they actually did. And it is only after that happens, the friendly foreign diplomat brings George Papadopoulos's comments to our attention. So now, knowing what the Russians did, now we also understand that the campaign may have been aware of this, was at least offered this assistance that we know took place, and may have, you know, accepted it and, and um, you know, colluded with the Russians along those lines. So at that point, um, opening a case on the campaign was absolutely necessary. We all know what ensued after that. We'll, we'll, we'll get into that in a second. Um uh, because it, it impacted you personally. But looking back, would you what would you have done differently uh, about that? It, could you have done anything differently? I often think about the fact that if, if, in fact, you guys were presented with a set of facts and didn't open an investigation, how people would have reacted to that. But given the explosiveness of it, could it have been approached differently? Should it have been approached differently? And... Uh, any regrets about the way it was approached either way? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a good question. No regrets about the major decisions that we made there. Really, it was very clear cut. There was not a debate over whether or not we should open a case. Of course, you know, when you look back with hindsight, there's always things that you think we could have done better. The decision to open the case was absolutely undeniably called for. Had we not opened a case on the Russians under those circumstances, to understand how and why the government of Russia was interfering with a domestic political campaign, a campaign for the presidency. I mean, that was, had, you know, had we not opened a case, we would have been derelict. What about that Steele dossier that has been made so much of, you know, much has been made of, of things that you have said about it and the role that it played? What, what, what role uh, did it play? And it has been, you know, it has been held up as a document that has been debunked. And yet there are major elements in there that, that were not uh, right. debunked. Talk about that and how you guys processed that. To be clear, the dossier, the information from Christopher Steele had nothing to do with the opening of the case on the Trump campaign because we didn't have it. At the time we opened the case, we opened the case at the end of July. We didn't get the information from Steele until, I'm going to say, like middle of September. So it had no role in the opening of the case. It did play a role in one aspect of the case, which was pursuing a FISA warrant. So that's a court order to yeah. permit you know, electronic surveillance on Carter Page. Who um, was an, uh, an advisor to the Trump campaign on foreign policy. That's had correct. Tie, had ties to the Russian that's correct. So when we opened the case, which is now well, well known as Crossfire Hurricane, um, we opened that as the you know major investigation, and we opened individual cases on four people: Carter Page, George Papadopoulos, uh, Paul Manafort, and Michael Flynn. So each one of those individual cases is kind of moving forward, you know, at its own its own pace. Um, the only one of those four that was appropriate to pursue FISA in at that time was Carter Page. Um, we worked with the Department of Justice to get a FISA. They didn't think we had quite enough. And then we received the steel information. We felt like adding that to the package gave us enough and the department agreed and, and it went forward. Um, I think that there's so much misunderstood about that inf that set of information and, and what we did with it. We definitely made mistakes that we now know about in the FISA application. Well, well, you 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 had a lawyer for the FBI who's pled to that guilty. Uh, yep, yep. For for uh, altering an email. That's right. To try and strengthen the case. That's right. That's right. And there were other mistakes made in the course of those FISA packages. You know, information that we were collecting during the course of the investigation that maybe contradicted elements of the Steele reporting, and that was not reported to the court in the in the way it should have been. And that's unforgivable. And um, you know, those are the kinds of things that you know we have to fix. I mean, that's not. I don't think anyone sees that any differently now. But the overall question kind of let's step back 100,000 foot level about the steel information. The FBI gets information all the time and much of it isn't verified and absolutely proven correct. But oftentimes that still unverified information makes its way into affidavits and 
requests for surveillance coverage, that sort of thing. Um, and as long as you represent accurately represent it as unverified information, that's acceptable to the court. Um, so the fact that we weren't 100% convinced of what we had with the steel information uh, when it was used in the initial FISA package is not, um, it's not uh, uncommon. The question that was raised was whether you um, should have made clearer the provenance of the Steele dossier, which was first commissioned by Republicans who were trying to beat Donald Trump and was uh, then uh, taken over by the people affiliated with the Clinton campaign. Would, would that be something that you should have told the judge? Well, we did. That was the issue, the kind of the final issue that we worked with the Justice Department on to determine, like, how should we how should we include that? How do you accurately describe this in the package? And ultimately, the department wrote a footnote. It's about a page and a half long and described it exactly as you have. So I think the provenance of the of the information was accurately described uh, in the first FISA package. You know, the bigger problems came later when months later, uh, the investigators had had the opportunity to interview one of the subsources whose reporting actually ended up in the in the Steele dossier. And during that interview, the subsource kind of walked away from the reporting a little bit and said, oh, well, you know, I was exaggerating or that was just, you know, barroom talk or something like that. And we failed to include that recharacterization in the later FISA requests. We should have. Mm-hmm. We should have put that in so the judges could weigh it against everything else they knew about the Steele dossier and make their own decision. Um, and, you know, those were those were mistakes that were made in the package. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. Let me ask about your own mistake that led to an agonizing couple of years uh, for you, uh, and that was about your handling of a leak to the, I guess, the Wall Street Journal uh, in late October of 2016 about how you uh, how the FBI was handling an investigation of the Clinton Foundation, and 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 uh, the fact that there was still an active investigation. Mm-hmm. You were asked about this by the uh, Inspector General of the of the Justice Department. You said you had no knowledge of it, and it turns out that you were the source of it. What? Why the? Why in the first instance did you not own, own up to? You had the authority to do such a thing, correct? That's correct. Yeah. So why why not just say, yeah, I did that? Yeah, there's absolutely no reason. There's no reason to do that. This is a uh, a long and complicated tale that I'm somewhat limited in what I can discuss with you because it is a subject of a federal lawsuit that I filed against uh, the department and the FBI. Um, but let me just say that, uh, first of all, to clarify, not a leak, right? There are two people in the FBI that have the authoriz- that have the authority to authoriz- authorize a release of information to the media, to the director and the deputy director. And so that's what I did in the course of my job. Um, you know, you deal with requests from the media every day and you're constantly making decisions about what you can and should respond to and what you shouldn't. So people who disagree with the decision of sharing that information with the press, hey, fine, reasonable minds can differ, but um, that was my uh, responsibility at the time. Um, The question that I got about that came to me about seven months after that interaction with uh, the Wall Street Journal, seven months or so, Um, completely out of context, in an inappropriate way, in the middle of an interview about an entirely different matter, which I had asked the inspection division within the FBI to investigate, a separate leak that had occurred presumably from one of my meetings, um, which concerned me greatly. Um, and so uh, they brought this prior months old interaction up. Of course, all this happened on the day that Jim Comey got fired. So it was a bit of a, a hectic day. 
Um, and I didn't, I answered the question incorrectly. And ultimately they wrote up the, the results of that interview and sent those results to me. And I saw what they had written about this exchange. I realized that it was not correct. And I never, so I never signed the statement. I called them back to my office and explained to them that this was wrong, that I had, uh, you know, I recalled, um, authorizing others to release this information. So, um, it's been wildly misrepresented first and worst, I would say, by the inspector general's office themselves. And it and and the you know, the problems just essentially grew from there. And we should point out that the Justice Department uh, then got involved, uh, opened an, an investigation. Ultimately, they uh, took no action uh, on this. But that went on for quite uh, quite a while. Uh, it was used as the as the uh, justification for firing you, what, 26 hours before you would have, uh, you, you were going to resign That's uh, right. from the FBI at that point. Uh, and I guess Jeff Sessions was the AG at the time, mm-hmm. uh, fired you 26 hours before your pension would have vested. Yep. Uh, so, um, and this all relates to the relationship with Donald Trump. <laughs> Tell me about that. You were Jim Comey's deputy. And by the way, you and Comey have had some differences about whether he knew that you had talked to reporters about this or not. And that has been uh, something brewed about. I don't want to get into that here. Uh, But tell me uh, about that period when you guys are pursuing this investigation. Trump is now the president of the United States. Uh, Comey gets fired. You take his place. Tell me about the pressures that you felt and how that impacted on you, your family, and so on. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's crazy to hear, to hear you say your relationship with Donald Trump. I'm not, it's, you're, you're right, but it's just the idea of having a relationship with Donald Trump is just still. Well, he kind of he, he messed with you, your life. I mean, he probably feels yeah. like you messed with his, but you were doing your responsibility. But, um, he he uh so yeah you had a relationship man whether you like it or not <laughs> i know it's crazy so yeah it all started in october right before the election in 2016 when he picked up on the comments made in the wall street journal article that we were talking about before and he started ranting and raving about me and my wife during his campaign rally saying all kinds of horrible um inaccurate things, accusing me of being corrupt, accusing her of having been corrupt when she ran for office in Virginia um, in 2015. So that was, if not bad enough, uh, Jim Comey starts meeting with uh, Trump in January after he gets inaugurated. And in, I want to say, three or four of those meetings, Trump brought me up with Comey saying like, what's the deal with that deputy of yours? You know, does he have a problem with me in a very kind of like threatening way? Um, and Jim was, you know, insistent that no, that wasn't the case. And part, part of it, but at that point, it was already Trump raising the fact that your wife, Jill, who uh, is a pediatrician, had run uh, for the state Senate in yeah. Virginia as a Democrat. And yeah. He didn't, you know, in his comments to Jim, it was just like this real threatening, you know, what's the, does that guy have a problem with me? Kind of the suggestion being, because if he does, you know, I'm, I'm going to come after him. And then at one point he asked, he said he was mad at Jim about something else. And he said, you know, I let you keep that deputy. Um, so there's no question that the guy was not uh, happy with me. So then I meet him for the first time on the day that Jim is fired. Um, Jim gets, uh, I find out about I, the Attorney General tells me that they've fired the director at about maybe 5.30 in the afternoon on on Tuesday, May 9th, um, 2017. And uh, I get a message that Trump wants to see me in the Oval Office that night. So I go down. See, that's a relationship when he calls you yeah. over the Oval Office that night. <laughs> yeah, come on down. Uh, no dinner for me, so I don't know <laughs> what that means. But um, yeah, so I went down. I'd never been in the Oval Office uh, been to the White House a million times for you know meetings in the sit room, things like that, but never been to the Oval. And so I had to have somebody show me how to get to it. And I uh, walked in, and he just launched, you know how he how he does. He's in like performance mode all the time, and he started just kind of like really this kind of manic 
rant about how great it was that they fired the director and everybody hated him. Wasn't it true that everybody hated him? And did I know that everybody hated him? And isn't it great? He's gone. And, and so I was just standing there and he, then he launched into like, I heard you were part of the resistance. And I had the slightest idea what he was talking about to ask them, you know, I was like, I don't know what you mean. And he said, I, I thought you were, I, I understand that you were not a friend of Jim Comey's and that you didn't agree with him on what he did and you weren't a part of all that. And I said, no, that's not true. I worked very closely with uh, Jim. I have great respect for him and I was a part of all those decisions. And so from that point, it was just like downhill from there. So yeah, by the, by the time we had wrapped up, you know, towards the end of that meeting, he brought up my wife again. He's like, he said, um, the only problem with you is that one mistake you made. And, you know, again, I said, I'm, I'm not sure what you're referring to. And he said, your wife, you know, and I said, well, if you mean her running for office, I don't see that as a mistake. Uh, I supported it then. I support her now. And I think it was a great decision. It didn't work out, but, you know, some things don't work out. And then he said, Oh yeah. Yeah. She's great. Everybody I know says she's great. And I remember thinking, you don't know anyone who knows my wife. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. It's just such nonsense. When, when your wife decided to run for office, because mm-hmm. the FBI, you know, obviously is trying to stay out of That's right. uh, politics. Um, did you, uh, did you speak to the ethics folks at the FBI? Did you get direction as to how to approach it? And uh, uh, what were the what were the boundaries for you? Yeah, I talked to all, all those people. I talked to my boss at the time, who was the then deputy director, Mark Giuliano. And I spoke to our head of the ethics um, uh, office, who's a guy named Pat Kelly, and met with him. And he laid out the Hatch Act and the things that I could do and couldn't do and kind of divided it into like during this period of the campaign, here's what you need to worry about. And then if she's elected, there's other things you need to be concerned about, but we'll, you know, hold on that for now. Um, And I, having been kind of shown the way to do it correctly, I still held out the prospect that the director might not want me to do it. And I asked his chief of staff and he spoke to the director and called me back and said, director says it's fine. You know, she, she should do whatever she wants. Um, and then I recused myself from, I was at the time running the FBI Washington field office, which covers Northern Virginia. And so I recused from uh, every case, every public corruption case um, that had to do with Virginia, just to stay away from anything remotely Virginia politics. You know, Trump, t- uh, he, he tied... Uh contributions from a super PAC that Terry McAuliffe ran uh, and suggested it was a pass-through and the Clintons had given your wife a half mm-hmm. million or 600000 or whatever it was to try and draw the case that somehow they had uh, purchased your your loyalty. Um, did it ever occur to you, at, uh, I, I mean, that's, so, that's attenuated for sure, did it ever occur to you when you guys were involved in these investigations, both the Clinton investigation and the Trump or the the Russia investigation that, hey, maybe I better recuse myself from these. No, no, it didn't. Honestly, I was actually kind of taken by surprise by that allegation that came out of that initial Wall Street Journal article. It just seems so utterly ridiculous to me. You know, my wife ran in 2015. I wasn't even in headquarters at the time. I was working in Washington field office. I had nothing to do with uh, the Clinton email case. Terry McAuliffe was the governor of our state and the leader of the Democratic Party. My wife ran as a Democrat. He supported, he he recruited her to run because he wanted a a doctor in Loudoun County who would support trying to expand access to healthcare. That's the only reason she ran. It's because it's, you know, it's been her life's work. So um, the idea that there was something untoward about the head of the party supporting a candidate, mm-hmm. which he supported six candidates in that race. She, she was not the one who received the most support. Um, it was just, it was just bizarre and stupid. Uh, you got yeah. fired. You got fired uh, as uh, as 
from the director's position. You get removed from that. The Justice Department opened this investigation on you, and you were a constant refrain for the president, as was your wife. What was the impact on you of all of this? And, you know, I'm thinking back to this career path of yours, which seemed pretty traditional, and all of a sudden, you are in the crosshairs. Yeah. Uh, and, I, you know, I'm sure there were security concerns and other concerns for you. Yeah. I mean, there's there still are. Um, so you live, you know, you do your I intended to retire when I turned 50. I'd had would have had almost 22 years in the bureau at that point. And so that would have been my plan uh, from the beginning. My just to go off into the private sector and, you know, not have to go to sleep every night worrying about protecting America. I was kind of looking forward to that. And um, yeah, I'd never, never, ever, ever wanted to be a public figure in any way. And when the president starts to attack you and your wife and your family, um, that's over. You know, all of a sudden you become not just a public figure, but this like polarizing, like, it's not really me. It's what people think I am. This, this crazy, like, legend of you know some sort of deep state covert operative trying to overturn the results of the election it's just you're actually a republican isn't that right isn't how you registered to vote well i was (laughs) wouldn't wouldn't ever consider myself that again but yeah i'd voted for republican presidents in every presidential election until 2016 and i said I, i can't ever imagine doing that again under any circumstances they've become such a mess but so, yeah, so to go from one day being this quiet, unassuming government professional who, you know, is concerned about security and safety, but keeps a low profile intentionally. And then the next day, your, your entire life is blown up and people are talking about you as some sort of like horrible spy that should go to prison, I mean, or be killed. It's terrifying and unbelievably disorienting and disruptive to really every aspect of your life. It was really hard on my kids. They were teenagers and so very aware of, of what was going on. Incredibly tough on my wife. But they're all very strong, resilient people. And we, you know, continue to kind of march on and have forged a future in the best way that we can. And you're, you're teaching now. I am. I just started teaching at George Mason University in the Shar School of Government and Policy. And um, that's really awesome. What's the subject matter? So I'm teaching a course. Not, not, not uh, probably not rela- <laughs> relations between various agencies of the federal government. But. It's uh, Presidential Investigations 101. <laughs> no, it's not that. It's, uh, I'm teaching a class in uh, national security law and policy. You know, you talk about, I mean, it had to be incredibly painful for your family, but you're also, you're, you're as you say, you know, a, a, a long, long, long time veteran of the FBI. How much damage has been done to the FBI uh, from the relentless hammering of the FBI and the insinuation that the FBI was part of a deep state plot to coup the president? You know, it's significant. It's significant what he's done to the FBI. And I think some of these scars, you know, they, they will recover. They will continue doing their jobs in the exemplary way that the men and women of the Bureau do every day. I have no doubt in that. Um, but this stuff can't be erased. Uh, there will always be some segment of the population that has a lower degree of trust for the FBI. This idea that the FBI might have been working against the president in some sort of surreptitious conspiracy, just incredibly corrosive um, to confidence and trust that as FBI agents, we rely on every day. And um, that's never going away. That is never going away. These, you know, I feel terrible for these people who are in the Bureau now who will never know another day in the Bureau when they don't have to deal with that kind of suspicion and those false accusations. It's really, um, it's really unfortunate what he's done. Andy McCabe, it's good to spend time with you. Best of luck in the future. Hopefully uh, you can, I know you're a commentator on CNN now, but um, toil in relative anonymity. <laughs> uh, I'm sure you, you, you look forward to that, but uh, it's, it's good to sit down and tap your expertise and your sense of the history we just lived. Dave, thanks so much. It's really been enjoyable. And, uh, Thanks for having me a part of your team. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. 
brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.